Sappho of Lesbos has grasped the imagination of poets, writers, lovers, and scholars, from Herodotus to Pound and Atwood. In antiquity, she was nominated as the tenth muse, and she could be called the poetess, just as Homer was conventionally known as the poet, and today Shakespeare, the bard. Her songs in ancient Greek were sung for centuries in symposia before being fixed in written form by Hellenistic scholars. These contained the written words of the songs she had once sung at the end of the 7th century, beginning of the 6th century BC, as they had been passed down and corrected back into the dialect once spoken on the island of Lesbos, Eolic, by some of the best scholars of the time. Ancient editors, for example, even reinstated the letter digamma, an F-shaped letter that had not been used for over half a millennium, where it could be known from Homeric research and meter to have originally stood in her words, a practice that today would be comparable to putting runes back into old English texts. By the Roman period, readers needed a commentary together with an adequately corrected text an annotated copy in order to make sense of her poems. Their texts, of course, were not perfect, but they knew the poems better and had far more of them to read than we do today. Sadly, her poetry did not survive the fall of Byzantium and Christian copying in a form any more complete than what could be culled from a handful of quotations and allusions in ancient authors. This is M.S. Graecus Classicus C76P. You can see it in the flesh just across the corridor in the Marks of Genius exhibition, where it is on the far wa uh, wall on the lower left-hand side, or in the Marks of Genius catalog, where it is positioned as number 33, in the sec first in the section The Most Ingenious Books, and just before the Gutenberg Bible, a tall order to live up to. The catalog entry there notes, I, I did not write it, um, our knowledge of Sappho's work is greatly limita limited by the fragmentary nature of the evidence. It goes on to say that some have made a virtue of this and have treated the gaps in her poems as invita invitations to conjecture possible readings. Classicists will be am amused to, uh, to learn from the catalog that these, quote, are not so much historical reconstructions as products of the imagination. <laughs> the papyrus itself was brought back to Egypt by two Oxford undergraduates, B.P. Grenfell and A.S. Hunt, who, under sponsorship of an Oxford Craven Scholarship and the Egypt Exploration Society, went to Egypt in search specifically of papyri in the rubbish mounds of the cities of the Greco-Roman settler class that ruled Egypt from Alexander the Great to the Arab conquest. The first non-biblical papyrus published by Grenfell and Hunt from Oxyrhynchus in 1898 had been a papyrus of Sappho's first book, P. Oxy 7, now in the British Library. In 1914, Hunt completed and published a reconstructed edition of the Bodleian Sappho, 
at a time when Grenfell lay exhausted in a mental health clinic, from which he returned only in time to read the proofs, contemporary newspaper accounts document the fervor. This is from the New York Times, 14th uh, of March, 1914. Explorers find new Sappho poem, Papyrus Unearthed by Directors of the Egypt Exploration Fund. Then the subtitle, it praises love, of course. <laughs> J.M. Edmonds of Cambridge has made a prose translation from the manuscript. Grenfell and Hunt, directors of the Egypt Exploration Fund, have discovered a papyrus containing a poem by Sappho, hitherto unknown. And Edmonds' translation runs, the fairest thing in all the world, some say, is a host of horsemen, and some say a ho horse host of foot, and some again a navy of ships. But to me, tis my heart's beloved, and tis easy to make this understood by any. That's the beginning of Sappho, what is now known as Sappho Fragment 16, which is preserved almost in its entirety uh, in the Bodleian manuscript and was previously unknown. It took Grenfell and Hunt 15 years to complete the work, although they had not been idle in the meantime. In 1923, the papyrus was given to the Bodleian by the Egypt Exploration Society under an ill-conceived and short-lived scheme to distribute the society's imported antiquities throughout the Western world in return for institutional and individual contributions to their excavation fund. Ill-conceived, I say, not least because it left the donated pieces marooned in sites, some of them much further afield than the Bodleian is from the Sackler, other than the main collection of the Oxyrhynchus papyri in the Ashmolean and subsequently Sackler libraries, where sister fragments of the same manuscript continue even today to be identified among the ongoing cataloging and publication process. Since the papyri were legally given, the scheme also led to privatization of numerous papyri uh, through deaccession for fundraising, such as happened just last year at the University of California at Berkeley. But I don't want to give the Bodleian any ideas about budgetary strategies. Welcoming the papyrus into the Bodleian's collection in 1923 would certainly have been Edgar Lobel. Uh, who worked extensively in Western manuscripts and the Bodleian during his tenure as a research fellow at Queen's College, during which he completed the first scientific edition of the Fragments of Sappho. Lobel went on later to produce, with Dennis Page, the edition that gives us the fragment numbers of Sappho in their modern editions. Lobel may have ha even had a hand in the selection of the Bodleian papyrus for accession and may have also helped to catalog it as he did with a number of other Bodleian papyri as MS Graecus Classicus C76P. Exhibited next door is the second of what are actually two frames of the papyrus. That's what the two in the inventory number stands for, plate two. The actual inventory number ends with P which, as you might have guessed, stands for papyrus. But what does the C stand for? The C gives the size, 
uh, in this case about 20 by 30 centimeters, of the glass frame holding the papyri in place. These uh, uh, classes, A through G, correspond to the sizes of the original wooden boxes in which the Bodleians stored the papyri deep in the subterranean tunnels under the library corridor until their decanting to the Radcliffe Science Library on Parks Road uh, 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 while their new home in the Western Library was being fitted out with, among other th things, state-of-the-art facilities for work on the papyri, which we are uh, uh, have the benefit of today. So the C uh, uh, is the third to the largest uh, uh, boxes. I had intended to bring an A and the B box, but they would not actually fit into the car. Uh, uh, the third to the uh, uh, largest size of papyri, and the glass frames were stored like this in, in, in inside them. Today, the papyri uh, uh, are housed in the glass frames, but inside modern clamshell clam boxes of a construction conventionally known by that term to conjure with conservation grade. Uh, uh, but since the boxes are of different, uh, diff uh, of different sizes than the original box, standardized, uh, uh, standardized sizes, the reference of the original size numbers logged into the entire inventory of the 1,700-plus Bodleian papyri uh, is lost to, to, to future generations. And it's a good example of how uh, uh, careful details embedded in cataloging metadata, for example, uh, uh, are easily lost even within a generation or, uh, or two of migration from one medium or storage facility to another. Now, frame two was carefully chosen for the exhibition by its for its final fragment. Here is, uh, 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 well, this is, a, uh, this is a bit of fragment 16, the poem that I just gave from Edmund's translation. This is the end of the poem where she comes back and says that uh, uh, Helen going to Troy reminds her of Anactoria uh, and that she'd actually rather see Anactoria's Bama, here's her Bama, Beta, Alpha, Mu, Alpha. She'd rather see her gait, uh, uh, her walk, uh, than all the chariots and foot soldiers of Lydia. So the poem returns to the image at the beginning of the Priamel that drops away of, some people say, a, f a, 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 a host of cavalrymen, some people say of foot soldiers, some people say of navy. I say it is what one loves. And she comes back to that at the, at the end of the poem. This is frame two, uh, uh, sorry. Sorry, the label on this is, uh, the label is wrong. It's not frame two. This is frame one, and this is the beginning of fragment 16, and this is the end, the close-up I just showed here, Tebama of Anactoria's footstep. Frame two was carefully chosen uh, uh, for its final fragment. That's in the corner here, and this is a close-up of it. Namely, the end of what was originally a complete papyrus roll of the first book of Sappho, the final of po poem of the book uh, that we now po call Sappho Fragment 30. <coughs> it mentions up here night, nukta, 
maidens uh, who, uh, by agreement in case, are celebrating all night long, panoi kizdoi sai, who might sing of the love between you and the violet-robed bride. Uh, it's a wedding song, or at least it uh, uh, talks about a wedding, and invokes the uh, maidens at the end to come, wake up, go and fetch the, the young bachelors of your same age, so that we may see less sleep than the clear-voiced vo bird does. Uh, the clear-voiced bird is, of course, the, uh, uh, the nightingale who sings all through the night. So this subscription, which follows in the papyrus here, uh, shows that this was the final poem in the first book, uh, because apart from uh, uh, Sappho's name, which would have been restored over here, uh, uh, it gives the title Melone, uh, that's the genitive plural, Melone, and the book number, Alpha, book one of the Mele, uh, or the Melek, or lyric songs of Sappho. In addition, here, this number, Chi Eta Eta Eta, Delta Delta, is the number of verses in the first book. 1,320 verses, or 330 four-line sapphic stanzas, as many as 50 to 70 poems, depending on whether uh, uh, the, the each poem contained five stanzas on the average, uh, or on the outside count, seven stanzas on the average, the maximum known uh, for any single poem of Sappho. Uh, fragment one uh, is complete in seven stanzas. The new uh, 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 poem has five stanzas and is missing at least one, so it had at least six. So of these 50 to 70, we have fragmentary parts of 45, either from quotations in ancient authors or as they are augmented by five now published papyri. In some cases, these are only a few words or a single stanza, and only one sp uh, poem survives complete. Sappho Fragment One, the famous hymn to Aphrodite, quoted by a Byzantine rhetorician, Dionysius of Halicarnassus. There's also an Oxyrhynchus papyrus that overlaps in a thin strip down the center of Fragment One. Now, the existence of, of such an edition just in time for Ptolemy I's newly founded library of, at, Alexandria, at, at Alexandria in Egypt is documented in a contemporary epigram by the Hellenistic scholar-poet and contemporary of Callimachus, Posidippus. He refers to Sappho's bright singing columns, Leukai, Fengomenai, Salides, or pages, as a way to alluding to newly produced copies of the Hellenistic edition of Sappho at Alexandria. White or shining, because of her enduring fame for poetic excellence, and because upscale and much sought after books were treated with cedar oil as a preservative, which polished their surface and gave to it a shiny glare. This information from the subscription of the Bodleian papyrus is also familiar to us, not only from papyri of other canonical Greek authors, but to a work known to us by the Hellenistic scholar-poet Callimachus, 
called the pinakes or tablets. This was an official list, no doubt uh, edited and augmented rather than simply composed by Callimachus, of all the writings in the palace library at Alexandria and therefore available for the education of the prince. Or perhaps it was a list of all known literary works or books. The evidence is controversial, but perhaps the two merged. Perhaps this was uh, a, a list of books that the Ptolemies intended to get their hands on for the, the libraries, including many of which they had already acquired, uh, like the official copy of the Athenian tragedies, for example, which Ptolemy I notoriously borrowed and then refused to give back. As far as we know, it was the first library catalogue in the Western tradition. Its entries gave the author, uh, together with some biographical uh, uh, information, probably at a most basic stage, the ethnic of the author, like Apollonius of Rhodes, uh, uh, and this could be augmented over time. The title and the genre, uh, uh, sometimes the two merged in the case of Sappho's poems, melee. Uh, the total number of lines, as we see in the Bodleian subscription, stichoi in the work. Uh, and finally, the incipit or beginning uh, of the poem. Rudolf Pfeiffer wrote that for the first time in history, the Pinnaches of Callimachus made the greatest treasures of literature accessible by dividing poetry and prose books into their appropriate classes and by listing authors in alphabetical order. This is a fundamental principle of the Pinnaches that they included a rough alphabetization. Although already Herodotus cites a poem of Pindar's by its incipit, the introduction of the incipit in a cataloger list seems to have been an innovation of Callimachus's. But the title of a work alone might be ambiguous, giving the incipit made the identification of a particular work easier. Recording the number of verses, or in prose, the number of lines on the basis of the length of a standardized fraction of a hexameter, 36 letters or 14 to 17 syllables, provided a third corroboration which could individuate any work in the catalog among homonymously titled works, Hippolytus Alpha, for example, or Hippolytus Beta. Scribes were also paid by the number of lines they copied, and the total number of lines would have been necessary for planning the layout and choosing the size of script before copying any work. A good illustration of the paramount importance of the Bodleian papyrus emerged last year in connection with this bibliographical detail. This came with the identification of new fragments of Sappho from a new papyrus manuscript uh, previously unknown and located from, uh, in two private collections, datable by its handwriting and C14 analysis to the early 3rd century AD. One, this one, the larger fragment, contains the substantial remains of one pro poem on Sappho's brothers and the first two stanzas of a second poem, the Cuprus poem, uh, 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 on a, a love poem addressed to Aphrodite as Cuprus. The larger fragment shows strips glued on in antiquity, 
ancient, repa ancient repair after and reuse after being damaged in antiquity. You can see them here where the strips are glued on over a place where the roll was torn vertically from top to, uh, top to bottom. In addition, there were 20 smaller fragments that conveniently overlapped with the Bodleian papyrus and allowed for their identification while uh, supplying additional bits of text, corrections, and readings that are lacking in the Bodleian copy. So uh, uh, for some parts of of Sappho uh, 15 uh, through uh, uh, 15 through 18 and fragment 5 which is also shown to come at the end of this sequence here and right before the larger fragment which would have been in the next column uh, um, uh, uh, the uh, uh, in, in, in additional to supplying individual uh, bits, of, bits of text, it shows how the roll goes back, how the poems went back to order in the original order in the roll. Both sets of new papyri derive from a collection formed in the 1950s by the Egyptologist David M. Robinson at the University of Mississippi, and were once in the University of Mississippi Library. They are now in the Greed Collection in Oklahoma City, and in a private collection in London. In the brother's poem, a speaker, presumably Sappho, addresses someone. That's this one. Addresses someone and criticizes this person for always chattering about Caraxes coming. Here's the end of the first line, which goes, Alai trulesta Caraxon is the first word, a man's name, Caraxon Elthain. May Caraxus come, or you are chattering that Caraxus has came, Elthain could be past tense, uh, uh, or might come, that Caraxus might come. Um, and not trusting in what Zeus and the other gods know. You are always chattering for Caraxus to come with a full ship. Zeus and the other gods know these things, I think but it's not necessary for you to think them. Summon me instead and commission me to beseech Queen Hera over and over again that Caraxus may arrive, piloting back here a ship that is safe and find us safe and sound. Let us entrust all other things to the gods, for out of huge gales, fair weather swiftly ensues. All of those whom the king of Olympus wishes a divinity as a helper to turn them from their troubles, become happy and richly blessed. And, this is the final stanza, if Larachos, Sappho's younger brother, if Larachos lifts up his head, and if he might one day be an established man, the deep and dreary draggings of our soul we'd lift to joy. And that's the ending, very triumphant flourish at the end of the poem which she states her duty to undertake to pray to Queen Hera for a safe return for Caraxos, piloting his boat to find us safe and sound. Uh, the poem closes for well-wishing for the younger brother uh, uh, um, uh, and is then followed in the papyrus by another poem addressed to Cupris. 
there's a, a mark in the papyrus, a decorated paragraphos, that shows the end after ipse lutamen, uh, uh, swiftly we would be released. And then a new poem begins that goes in Greek, postake tis u tameosa saito, who couldn't possibly be often sick with love? Cupris is the address at the uh, beginning of the second line. So the new fragments show conclusively the alternation in book one of, of poems about family and cult on the one hand, uh, and personal concerns about love and lovemaking on the other. A cycle of poems concerning seafaring is revealed, centering on the drama of a mercantile family of wine traders on 7th century Lesbos. Caraxos, the elder brother, is out at sea trading a boatload of wine in exchange for spices, textiles, and grain at Naucratus in Egypt. Using the Bodleian papyrus as a guide, my collaborators and I ordered the, these, uh, 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 these pieces, individually separated in a disordered array of 20 different fragments, ordered them according to the sequence and text of the Bodleian papyrus. I, 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 uh, I ventured to say it would have been impossible to do without the Bodleian papyrus as a, ga as, as a guide. It produced three main ensembles, uh, uh, which fell predictably into position. This is the uh, Sappho 16, followed by another poem which ends here, and the beginning of Sappho 17. Continuing after a gap, these are the line ends of, uh, of fragment 17. Um, these are the line ends of, uh, of uh, the a poem following Sappho 16. Here we have a continuation of Sappho 18. And then Sappho fragment 5, which was a surprise for a reason that I will tell about. And this continues Sappho fa fragment 5 here. Sappho fragment 5 is also about her brother and following on would have been a column, maybe with a column in between, the, uh, with the large fragment with the poem about Caraxos and Laracos and the Cooper's poem. Um, in some cases, the new fragments supply line ends to a previously known line beginnings in the Bodleian papyrus. Uh, and in one case, Sappho fragment five, um, which begins here, there's the decorated Paragraphos, a completely unknown fragment of Sappho here, and then the beginning of, 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 uh, uh, of fragment five, which begins not Kuprikai uh, and Aphrodite, which you will find uh, 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 in all uh, previously published uh, uh, texts of Sappho fragment five, but Potniae, queen, and the next word, which is in uh, uh, um, uh, Pioxy 7 in the British Library, is Nereides, Queen Nereids. It's an address or hymn to the Nereids, uh, 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 well wishing for Sappho's brother in his trip at sea and hoping that he comes back safe safely. So the Nereids are invoked as protectresses of sailors at, at sea. So completely unknown uh, uh, beginning. Uh, and oddly enough, this fragment was identified on the basis of these line uh, beginnings. Uh, uh, of fragment five, which do not exist in any 
uh, a textual witness, any previously existing textual witness. Rather, they were entirely restored by conjecture by Friedrich Blass already in 1898. Uh, uh, and because they are in modern editions, in searchable corpora of Greek literature, searches of these strings of letters produced a match and identified this as fragment five. The brother's poem and the Cooper's poem were more, more elusive to identify. I made the identification originally on basis of meter, dialect, poetic language, and the names of Larikos and Caraxos, who only occur in Greek literature of Sappho's brothers. Uh, but there was still controversy. After sustained examination, Martin West uh, wrote to Mary Beard in an email she copied to me, saying, my initial impression was that it was very poor stuff and linguistically problematic. But the more I look at it, the more okay it seems. It's certainly not one of her best, but it has her DNA all over it. <laughs> Further confirmation came from the discovery that one of the fragments from the Botlean copy actually overlaps letter for letter with the Cooper's poem. The Cooper's poem beginning here. B. Oxy uh, uh, 1281, which is the Bodleian papyrus, has a fragment, fragment 16, which is edited as Sappho, fragment 26 in modern edition, which is actually not a self-standing uh, poem that it is restored there, but actually overlaps with this part of the Cooper's poem. And uh, again, confirms that this comes from the first book, uh, from an edition of the first book of Sappho. Um, the purpose of organizing the edition, uh, 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 sorry, the, the other thing that was confirmed by the Bodleian po uh, papyrus was that the poems in the first book of Sappho were organized alphabetically by first letter of the first word of the incipit. Although the first, uh, although the incipit of the brother's poem is lost, the incipit of the following poem is pos, pos cade. Uh, that is, it began with the letter pi. Now, if we back up, it looks like the preceding poem in fragment five also now begins with the letter fa pi, potnia. And if we go to the Bodleian papyrus, here is the, uh, 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 sorry, the incipit of fragment 16, Sappho's fragment 16 following Sappho fragment 17 following Sappho fragment 16. Here is its beginning. Uh, um, where did it go? Here with pi uh, uh, after, the after the coronis. And fragment 16, which is the uh, poem but one before that, uh, uh, has its beginning in where did it go? It's not sized out. It's hoi men. This is just the end. Oh no, this is uh, hoi men has been cut off of the photo. It began with an omicron. Hoi men hippon. Some pe uh, people say of horse horsemen. Uh, uh, so the sequence was uh, clearly o, uh, uh, pi, and so on through th uh, the alphabet. Now the purpose of organizing the edition alphabetically by first letter of incipit was to make it easy to find a poem of which one remembered the beginning. Ancient Greek lyric poems, with the exception of dithyrams and nomoi, had no titles per se. 
Therefore, the only way to register them, it seems, was according to the inkibit, a, me a method still applied in modern indexes of lyric poems of an author or of an anthology and also in casual forms of citation. Sappho Fragment 31, the only other poem from Book 1 for which we have the inkipit, Finitai Moi Kainos, he seems to me, that man seems to me like a god, uh, must have come very late in the book, uh, uh, certainly in the second half. Hellenistic editors, however, made an exception for the first poem in the book. It begins not with a, uh, alpha, but with a pi, poi kilotron at anataphrodita, invoking uh, uh, Aphrodite uh, by the epithet poikilon. Uh, so it's been pulled out of uh, alphabetic order and lodged at the front of the, uh, uh, of the book to create a kind of proem or signature tune for Sappho's edition of her first book to start out with. And there is some reason to think that the final poem in book one, the one about the uh, maidens dancing all night long at a wedding, uh, uh, was also out of alphabetical sequence. And the reason for thinking that is the previous poem was also in the form of a wedding song, and the final poem of book two was also in the form of a, a, a wedding song. Uh, so there's no reason to think that the final poem began uh, 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 with, with o o Omega. Rather, the role, or the, bo the book role, has been given, uh, been given a very smart conclusion uh, uh, with a wedding associated in, in the ancient mind with Sappho. Um, for Sappho, these were signature tunes, uh, heading up and, and concluding the collection that was known in the Sapphic meter, Hendecasyllables, uh, uh, as her first book. The new fragments then corroborate this alphabetic arrangement as one of the fundamental ordering principles of the Alexandrian library and of librarianship in general, as they shed new light on the structuring of the Hellenistic poetry book. Alphabetizing essentially places the poem, poems in a kind of random order vis-a-vis -vis each other, so that poems about family and cult next stand follow on uh, uh, by those about love creating an intriguing juxtaposition and offering newly found connections. Uh, uh, there's also a possibility of subdivide, since the alphabetization was not, uh, uh, what is, since the alphabetization what is, is what was called coarse alphabetization, namely only by the first letter, rather than fine and full alphabetization all the way through the word, uh, there's a further possibility that the poems were subordered within each letter chronologically, uh, uh, beginning with poems from the early part of Sappho's career, or when she sang in the voice of a young woman or girl, uh, uh, down to poems which we, we know she did in one poem on a Cologne papyrus, when she sang in the voice of an old woman. Um, uh, at the same time, the collection, at least as we can see it from book one, we don't know what the other, uh, how the other books were organized, gets a programmatic poem at the beginning, and another at the end, giving the book some sense of symmetry and balance, that is, with a beginning, a middle, some kind of story, a drama going on about Sappho's family, maybe a drama about a young woman growing up and going through uh, stages of life in the chronological sequencing of the poems. The Bodleian copy of Sappho th thus not only revolutionized the study of Sappho and secured her a fixed place of honor 
in the modernist and minimalist poetic traditions, because the poems were fragmentary, they seemed to be just a glimpse out of uh, a, a poet's psyche. It opened a window into the world of Hellenistic book production through which scholars are still gazing today, fueled by new evidence. It supplied virtually complete texts of Fragment 16, substantially more of the text of Fragment 17, now completed by the new papyrus, and fragmentary texts completely new to the literary record. It stands as the most, complete, most extensively preserved manuscript of Sappho in that, although fragmentary, it preserves poems of the first book spanning the entire second half of the book roll, that is from uh, verse 650 to 1320. It provides the blueprint against which all other fragments of Sappho's first book may be profitably oriented. Thank you.